It's episode 26 of The Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. Today on the program, I'm joined by my good friend, Mike Davidson. He used to be the vice president of design for Twitter, and we talk about how to give good design feedback and run design reviews. We also take a look at the new Twitter design, and we talk about his recent trip to Haiti. So let's get right to it. So tell me a little bit about this trip to Haiti you just did. What was the what was the impetus to head over there? Yeah, so you know Haiti wasn't really on my bucket list. I'll be I'll be <laughs> honest. Uh, but we went to this charity dinner last October, my wife and I, and uh, it was put on by the Seahawks, one of my favorite teams. And you know there were like a bunch of items on the charity list, and you know I was like autographed football, autographed jersey, <laughs> you know standard stuff, like whatever. And, um, you know, there was this one item that was like, hey, go down to Haiti with Cliff Averill and a few of his teammates um, where, you know, where he's from and help open a school and build some houses. And I turned to my wife and was like, do you want to go to Haiti? This sounds amazing. Yeah. Sounds like a great, a, a great opportunity to see a part of the world that we would have never seen before. Uh, and she said, yeah. So uh, we won. Um, and we headed down there a couple months ago with, uh, with, a, you know, with a, a handful of players and their wives and another couple oh, and, that's pretty cool. um, a solar energy guy yeah. and a, f- a few other people who were helping out. And it was, it was pretty amazing. We were down there for probably, I think eight, eight or nine days. We traveled the entire country. Um, we visited, uh, an orphanage, um, to kind of see the progress that had occurred between the previous year when, when Cliff, uh, started helping out and, mm. and, and this year and the children were in much better shape. We, uh, we painted the second building of, of Cliff Averill's, uh, school that he built. So that, that was pretty fun. So the first building was blue. We painted the second one pink, uh, and we, and we broke, uh, we broke ground. We actually broke ground on the third building. We, you know, picked up, you know, picks and shovels and yeah. dug trenches for a little while. Uh, so that was fun too. And, you know, it was, it was interesting because, you know, Haiti is the poorest country in the world outside of a few in sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. And, you know, I was expecting it to be, you know, people near death and just sadness and despair and, you know, what you would expect, um, you know, from a country that sort of like has that amount of a- economic activity and, and, and hardship. And what I saw was the opposite. You know, here, here's a country that's been devastated by, you know, earthquakes and hurricanes and political corruption for, right. you know, hundreds of years. And, uh, you know, people are kicking soccer balls on the side of the street and laughing. And, like, these kids are, like, you know, three feet tall and they're walking five miles up a mountain every day to go to school. And they're, you know, still shooting the shit with their friends and, and, and making do. And, it, it was the cool thing about it is it just sort of like reminds you that, you know, you can be happy with a dollar a day and, you know, you can be you can be unhappy with 20 billion dollars. It's it's funny. You know, we 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 get mad when we come out of the supermarket and our car is dinged up, you know, and and that sort of problem like doesn't even register. I'm pretty I'm the- pretty upset when Amazon Prime is like the second day and not next day. Like, yeah. 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 Oh, I exactly. get it. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, it helped put things in perspective, um, which I think is, is, is always healthy. That is good. That is good. And just, I can imagine removing yourself from, I mean, so you kind of removed yourself from the bubble of Silicon Valley to, I guess, another sort of bubble, but not quite as intense. You, you live in Seattle now, yeah? Yep. And A, rain, um, a rainier bubble. Yeah, right. But to, re- to further remove yourself at, at any opportunity, I just think is great for perspective setting and, and realignment and all sorts. So 
Yeah, well done. I like that. Idea. Thanks. Yeah, it's fun. I, I highly recommend it. I mean, if you if you get a chance to take you know a few months off in your life, if you're uh, you know a month, a few months, a year, whatever, or if you, if you do get that chance at some point, like it's it's definitely worth it. You know, I, I mean, I haven't I haven't taken more than two weeks off since you know since starting working when I was eighteen, and yeah. and you know I, I think you know you live in London now, and I, you know I think in in Europe and in other countries in the world. It, it's much more common to take sabbaticals every so often, every seven years or whatever. And in the U.S., we just don't do that, and it's a shame. Right, right. We barely take two weeks in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, I did that a bunch of years ago. I went to um, El Salvador and did something similar, built a school, literally oh. like carrying cinder blocks and lifting them up and putting them on a wall and stuff like that for a couple yeah. of weeks. Yeah. And, uh, and, and even that, like, let alone the, the kind of richness of cultural interchange and and level setting and all that kind of stuff. Actual physical labor for a couple of weeks was really... Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you want to have a well-rounded life. You want to you want to be able to kind of like get a feel for what things are like in all, you know, in, in, in all areas of the world, um, in all types of labor, in all economic environments. And, you know, it, that takes work. You can't just, you can't just let it come to you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you're taking a little time off? You're calling this a sabbatical? You're thinking about getting back in the game? Soon? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I joked that it was retirement early on, but you know, I never, I never, never planned to leave the workforce for forever. Um, but See, I'm... my impression was <laughs> that since you had grown the David Letterman beard, you were going to adopt the David Letterman lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, well, I have kind of adopted that lifestyle, actually. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm probably a year, I think I'm about a year and a half or so into... Oh, like, has, it, has it been that long? Yeah, it's been about a year and a half. And like, I'm not bored. Like, I, I just... I, I've learned about myself in this time period that I, like I am not addicted to work. I, I, I like working, um, but I don't measure my own self worth by how much I produce every single day on a consistent basis. I just right. I don't know. Like I think there's 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 room to kind of relax and recharge the batteries and and think about what's next. And you know, particularly with um, you know with regard to to you know what what happened last October and November in in this country. Um, uh, that, that you seem to so have gracefully escaped. Um, oh, I've, I'm in a whole different situation over here. There's yeah. not even a government. Oh, actually, I think as of yesterday, there might be a government here. But <laughs> oh, interesting. Well, yeah. So we're you know we we're we're we're, we're more similar than 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 I guess yeah. I guess I thought. Yeah. But uh, you know that event to me sort of recalibrated recalibrated in my head like what's important you know mm, i think yeah. before that event happened i was you know i'm building up a list of ideas of you know, products i may eventually want to build and um you know before that before the election there was a lot of like oh i want to like help people disconnect from their phones a little bit and i want to like you know, help people kind of like, you know, do you know, make their lives a little bit more simpler or whatever, you know, typical kind of like product designer thoughts. Mm -hmm. And now that all that just seems like, like, you know, first world stuff, like it just seems like it's not that important anymore. Like now we need to save democracy. And so, <laughs> yeah. okay, yeah, let's yeah, start yeah. thinking about that, you know? Right. Um, yeah. So it's a whole different kind of set of problems, I guess, that I'm, that I'm looking at now. So that's, I mean, that's interesting too, considering where you were before, right? Like yeah. uh, deep, deep into Twitter and building essentially the next, uh, or at current generation media and, and consumption and, and things like that. There was that article in the New York Times with Ev recently where he essentially just like, you know, if I contributed to what's happening in politics, I'm really, truly sorry. You yeah. know? And, I, and I sensed a sort of, uh, maybe not moroseness, but at least a sense of responsibility and like heaviness to that interview with him. You feeling that? Like, is that connecting for you as well? 
Absolutely. I mean, I, I love that interview and I love the way that Ev thinks about that. I think he's being very, you know, intellectually honest about yeah. about the potential effects of all of these technologies that we've built. And I don't think that most people in our industry are willing to do that. I think there's a lot more of the whole, well, we're just writing code and like we're sure. we're just we're just putting bits out there and like the computers are neutral and this is just human nature and if humans are using our our bits in a certain way then it's you know that's just what the world is. Like I I think we have a bigger responsibility than that and you know it's I, I think as designers and engineers and you know PMs we have we have a hard time separating the you know intentions of what we build from the effects of what we build and yeah, yeah. i don't think that anybody who started twitter whether it's uh you know ev or jack or or anybody else who was involved noah um or anybody who started facebook for that matter or any of these other services i don't think anybody like set out with the idea of like polluting the world with fake news you know like that just, right. i guarantee yeah. you that was not in the spec um and it's never been in the spec it's not in the spec right. now you know um but the fact that these tools that that were built for good um, and for profit but for good have been sort of uh, uh taken over by people who wish to do ill you know is the responsibility of the people who may maintain those tools and you know now that so many people are using these tools to get their news and only those tools to get their news. Right. Um, it is a, incumbent upon the people maintaining those tools to to help sort of make sure that people are getting a a, a good information diet, a balanced diet, and like that's not happening. Yeah. And yeah. you know, p people ask like people ask me, do you feel you know do you feel responsible for what happened in you know October, November, and like, I mean, a little bit, yeah. I mean, I, I first of all, I, I I left the company before before you know the, uh, the person who won became became candidate so i you can't even I, say his name can you? i can't even say his name <laughs> no um but you know i left right before that happened so i you know i have that out i guess you know i don't think that 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 victory occurred because the person uses twitter i think that victory may have definitely been helped by the fact that so many people get all of their news through social media now. Right. Um, and when you look at how news propagates through social media, like take your typical kind of fake news story on, you know, let's just use Facebook as an example. You see it once on your feed and you're like, oh, something crazy happened in a pizza chain down in the basement. Like that sounds ridiculous. There's no way that happened. Yeah. And then you like, you know, go back to work and then like, you know, two hours later you open up Facebook again and there's like another item about it. And you're like, ha ha, there's that like super bizarre like thing that didn't happen again. And then like the next day you look at your feed again, you're like, huh, I'm seeing this again. There may be something to it. And like repetition breeds trust. And, uh, you know, the people who are pushing these sorts of stories out there, you know, recognize that. And so, you know, to think that we have this amount of information pollution in the world right now because of the platforms that we've built um, is, is not a happy thought. And right. we, we are responsible for fixing it. There, you know, I've always thought that there were two sides to that coin. The, um, one of the beauties of social networks and the openness of the Internet is that people, wherever they are, uh, whoever they are can feel that they're not alone, uh, likely for the first time in history. You know, you think about yeah. somebody who is transgendered and 13 years old and living in Oklahoma. 
for example, can say like, oh my God, there's a community out there and it, the world that I live in is not the whole world. And they can see that and connect and, and it's transformative and it's amazing. But that's the same phenomenon as surrounding yourself with pol people that have the same political ideologies and, and sort of turn into this self-perpetuating source of either fake news or, or limited perspective and things like that. That tribalism that comes from it has two sides to it. So I think that's the nature of how hard the problem is to solve because you don't want to squash one while enabling the other and vice versa, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it, you know, when you think of kind of analogies, you know, you can, you can think of things like, like, like alcohol, like, let's say, you know, you can, you can say social media is like alcohol. Well, there's some people who think that like alcohol is one of the greatest, greatest inventions, uh, you know, in, in the history of the world. Like, look at all the things that it, it's done. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, you know, it's allowed us to like, you know, get a little bit loose during dinner. It's allowed us to like, like, uh, uh clean wounds. It's, it's, allow it's allowed us to like, you know, fuel certain, certain vehicles. It's allowed us like alcohol like it does a lot of good in the world but then you look and you're like oh my god alcohol does so much bad in the world too <laughs> like people <laughs> when people drink too much of it like it's you know it's it's a it's bad on on their lives and it's bad on the lives of those around them um you know or sugar same thing right like yeah. could you imagine life without sugar now like it's you no know, nothing nothing would taste good right. um but but then we look at like what happens to people who eat too much sugar and um, you know, it, it, you know, there's obesity, diabetes, cancer now is being blamed on sugar. So, you know, like you said, there's two sides to the coin. And like, I, I am, you know, personally struggling with what my own usage of social media should be, because yeah. I, I notice it myself as well. Like I, I notice there are some days where I use, you know, Twitter or Facebook or, you know, anything else. And I'm like, wow, like every interaction I, I saw today or at part or participated in today was terrible. Like it was a huge waste of my time. Right, um, right. and then there are other days where I'm like, Oh my God, I would, I wouldn't have known this like hugely important thing if I hadn't opened up Twitter this morning. Yeah. Was it Homer Simpson that said that alcohol is the cause of and solution to all of life's problems? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I love it. Social media too. Yeah. Like empty calories, but also real time pulse of the world. So yeah. yeah. What do you do? What do you do? Yeah. What do you think of the new Twitter design, by the way? Oh, I love it. I think it's what's great. your hot take. Oh, my hot take. <laughs> Look, it, it's interesting because I, you know, having worked there, having led the design team for, you know, over three years, like I'm privy to a lot of stuff um, that I can just see in the design um, that, mm. that, that, you know, may not be apparent, you know, upon a first casual glance. For instance, I'll give you an example, like I can tell just by looking at it um, that it wasn't A-B tested to death. Like there are things in the Twitter uh, redesign that I, I just look at. And I'm like, oh yeah, we tested something like that like three years ago, and you know it didn't it didn't test quite as well as this other way of doing it. And, and mm. I love seeing that. Like I yeah. love I love the fact that like there's a little bit of air cover there now for like you know being bold with uh, you know a slew of design changes at once and having kind of like a holistic view of like, hey, this is how it should look. This is how it should feel. And like, if, you know, we're, we don't like putting labels under the icons, text labels under the icons, because it makes things look muddy and it like crowds, you know, it crowds the interface. So we're just not going to do that. Um, and I look like that to me, it's like, it's such a small thing, but it's, it, it's such a huge signal that, um, you know, the, that, that the, the design team and the engineering team, even the product team, you know, is, has been sort of, um, f you know, freed up to be a little bit bolder with, uh, the changes that they're making. So, you know, visually, I think it's, it, I think it's fantastic. 
Um, I think it's a little happier now too. Like, you know, yeah. everybody, everybody yeah. likes to debate about circle avatars versus square avatars and like this and that, and like, that's fine. But just in general, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a happy, it's a, like a more happy, more lively kind of interface. And, you know, I forgot who it was on Twitter, but somebody said like, huh, I wonder if making it kind of look a little bit happier and a little bit less hard edge is actually going to make change the way people interact on it and oh, interesting yeah, yeah and that, like that an emotional will, response to it yep. that, that affects the content that people post yep yep absolutely you know there's less like in fact even little things like you know that little bubble that says follows you you know like when you yep. when you go to the side and the sidebar and says oh this person follows you like that used to be all caps follows you yeah now it's mixed case follows you you know, so less shouting in the interface maybe will lead to less less shouting, <laughs> you know, in your timeline. I, I doubt it, but maybe. Who knows? This episode of Presentable is brought to you by Casper. Casper is a company that focuses on sleep, and I'm thrilled they're supporting the show because I think getting a handle on your sleep is one of the most important things that you can do to improve almost every part of your life. I've personally spent a bunch of effort on this, working on my schedule to go to bed and get up at consistent times, and of course, creating an environment that really allows me to get the best possible rest. A great mattress may be the most important part of that, and Casper makes the perfect premium mattress and sells it online for a fraction of what it would cost in a store. Their award-winning mattress is developed in-house and has a sleek design and is delivered in an impossibly small box. In addition to the mattress, Casper also now offers an adaptive pillow and soft, breathable sheets. An in-house design team of engineers spent thousands of hours developing the Casper mattress. It's obsessively engineered at a shockingly fair price, so it's no surprise that they have an average of 4.8 stars across more than 30,000 online reviews. Their San Francisco research and development team have developed a proprietary proprietary foam that relieves pressure and increases airflow. Then they combined it with springy comfort layer to contour to your body and keep you cool. This means Casper mattresses have just the right sink and just the right bounce. Buying a Casper mattress is so easy and completely risk-free. Casper offers free delivery and free returns in the US, Canada, and get this, now in the UK too. So here in London, Casper offers free delivery and free returns in the US and Canada. And now which is especially exciting for me, in the UK as well. And with Casper, you actually get to sleep on their mattress before you make their decision. You get to try it out for 100 nights, decide if it's the mattress that you want to spend a third of your life on, and if you don't love it, they'll come by, pick it up, and refund you everything. And as a sponsor of this show, they're offering $50 towards any mattress purchased by visiting casper.com presentable and using the code presentable at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you so much to Casper for supporting this show and all of Relay FM. So were you a little frustrated with the quantitative like heaviness of the design process there? Was that, was that a factor while you were leading I mean, the team? Yeah, it was, it was, it was a challenge for sure. Um, you know, I think it all, it helped us all grow as designers, you know, like I think most designers in the world have never really worked with large amounts of data. Um, and you know, I had worked at ESPN and NBC news and a bunch of big companies, but like I had never worked with as much data as, you know, as, as Twitter has at its disposal. And so, you know, I, I, on the one hand, I think it's really good to be able to, you know, work around that amount of data. But on the other hand, like, you know, too much knowledge is also a little crippling. You know, if you, if you are, are slave to the numbers, um, you tend to you make decisions that that sort of optimize, uh, you know, for the short term. Yeah, I can tell you five things that we could do to you know increase engagement on Twitter within the next like three days. You know, make a few things bigger, make a few things brighter. 
um, you know, if you're optimizing for like engagement over the next three days, like that's easy. But, you know, the insidious effects of that is like, okay, well, you know, you look at the numbers a month or two later and like people actually aren't using it, you know, as much or maybe they're using it less because it just isn't as good of an experience. And so, yeah, that was challenging for sure. Um, I also think, you know, as a public, as a newly public company with a lot of eyes on your quarterly numbers, can't just say we're, we're just doing it this way because we want to. Like you, right. it, it is a responsibility of yours to, you know, to, to help the business at every turn and to, you know, and, and to keep a close eye on, on, you know, on the numbers. So um, I think it was challenging, but I also think it was it was it was necessary in a lot of ways. Hmm. But, uh, you know, even, just to give you an example, uh, another example, like. Even something as simple as seemingly simple as increasing the size of photos, right? So, like when you take a when you upload an image to Twitter, let's say you take a photo on your camera and you upload it, you know we have this cropped rectangle that we show you, right? It's, it's the same same aspect ratio every time, and if you want to see the whole photo, like you, you got to tap on it and then we pull up the whole photo. Like just making that rectangle like twenty pixels taller would have a, a pretty like you know significant revenue effect and engagement effect on the product. And so you can't as a de designer just say like I like the way it looks when we show more of the photo. <laughs> you have sure. you have you have to say what effect does right. it have on the business. And so uh, I've seen in the in the life of a design team or the life of a company as it grows it's almost like mm -hmm. a pendulum swing between qualitative and quantitative with the hope that the pendulum kind of slows down but that you keep kind of moving back and forth and saying, where are we most comfortable with these different methods and experimentation and things like that? So, you know, maybe that's, maybe this redesign is an is a example of that, where it was way over in the data-driven side of things with justifications for every pixel and kind of moving back maybe towards a bit more of instinctual, like this feels better, it looks better, it's emotionally better. Uh, without letting go of the skills that yeah. developed. Yeah, I, know, I think resonate? I think that's a very astute. I think it's a very astute way of putting it. Um, and and I I do think that like yeah, it it is a pendulum, and you wish that it, it sort of stopped swinging and we kind of landed on a an ideal way to do it. But like it's you know it it also there are also you know periods of time in a product's life where it is more. Um, appropriate to do that in periods of time where it's less appropriate to do that. One of our engineers at Twitter, a guy named Peter Seibel, wrote this really great uh, post on A-B testing. It's one of the best articles I've ever read on, on A-B testing. It's called Building Websites with Science. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. Okay, great. And it talks about how like, you know, A-B testing and, you know, quantitative analysis is great at helping you get further up the mountain that you're already on. But it's not great at telling you where the next mountain is, the higher mountain, the mountain that you have to right, jump to. Right. And so, you know, if you're at the point in your product development where like you just have to kind of like get further up the mountain that you're already on, like, yeah, you know, A-B testing is great and quantitative analysis is great. But if you're trying to find that next mountain, data isn't necessarily the way to help you find it. No, I mean, I would uh, put a lot of effort in my career into that sort of ethnographic research as a means for exploring idea spaces and uncovering problems that uh, people are, are facing. And, and I just, it, it isn't, uh, it just doesn't feel as concrete as the qu quantitative analysis does. And I think that's why it's harder to bring that into business. Right. It feels slow and expensive and, and too subjective. And I think we, we lose a lot as a result of that, but uh, there's still time. We can still get yeah. there. Yeah. And I think, <laughs> by the way, going. I think Quant has the opposite problem. I think Quant is like, okay, we know people are using the product less now, but why? You know, or we know people are using the product more now, but why? It doesn't ever tell you the why. It tells you, 
it's just it's fingerprints, you know, but it, it doesn't tell you like why yeah. certain things are happening. And that's where qual is so is super important. That was always my question. I, often, frankly, in my career facing off with the, the, you know, the quant person who has all the answers, this is working better. Yeah. So we're using it in the design. And my, and my question was always, what have we learned? Yeah. Why does that work? What we have learned is that the blue button is better than the green button in this context for the period of time that you tested. And uh, I don't feel like we have gotten smarter as a company as a result. Yeah. So yeah, there's discovery and there's analysis and there's uh, validation and verification. And I think they're all kind of, they feed into one another in, in some way that can be harmonious in this yep. again, pendulum swing. Yep. I did want to talk about feedback a little bit. And, you know, I, I have found myself in those kinds of meetings where we're making product decisions and we're looking at designs and deciding on a direction and having these kind of arguments like I described with the, uh, with data science or, or engineering or other designers. And you must have had all sorts of opportunity to refine that kind of process with, I mean, how big was the design team while you were at Twitter? Yeah. You had a hundred and some, didn't you? hundred. Yeah. When I, by the time I left, it was about a hundred people. Uh, it was about two thirds design and one third research Right. with, you know, a few people like me, you know, management overhead, uh, overhead. I, like to, I like to refer to us as, <laughs> you know, built in, but let's say, let's say there were like, I don't know, 15 of those 15. 10, 10, 15 of those. Uh -huh. So fairly large team. You know, we, we certainly had to, sorry, I'm getting all these iMessages coming in now. How do I, <laughs> how do I mute this so that. You, you know, the little like uh, uh, sidebar that comes out from the side of your Mac. Yeah. If you scroll that down, you'll see do not disturb. Oh, really? Wait, sidebar that comes up from the Mac. Wait, yeah, right, what? right next to the Siri button. Up in your up in your menu bar. Oh, I turned off the Siri button. Oh, well, don't you have a little thing in the corner that like. Oh yeah, out. that. Oh my yeah. god, I've never, it, I have never pressed that. Holy shit! And then if you scroll that down, you see like, n do not disturb. Is there do not? Oh, today. Oh yeah, yeah there we a, go. Look at that. Yeah, there you go. That's wow, Veen, you're a genius. I might just leave this in the podcast so that everybody knows about this feature. I think, I think I you should. I think you should. <laughs> look, I guarantee you, there are people listening to this who have never even used that drawer or didn't know there was a do not disturb uh, on your Mac. And, so, and it's awesome. got night shift as well. You can turn that on and have a nice pleasing. Ah yellowy screen so amazing yeah. amazing <laughs> thank you thank you so much um okay so now we're on do not disturb oh yeah okay so yeah it was a fairly large team you know about 100 people or so and uh you know when i first got there it was a lot smaller it was maybe 20 20 people and you know i interviewed everybody on the team and i said like hey what are your frustrations you know what do you like about working here what do you dislike what do you what what you know how can i help basically. Right. Um, and I said to myself, I'm not, I don't want to make any decisions for the first 30 days. All I want to do is just listen. And one of the like common things that came up, common pieces of feedback that came up was like, you know, we do all this work to, you know, design new stuff or redesign things. And then we like bring it into these meetings and, you know, with these execs or, you know, other stakeholders. And, you know, we're looking for, you know, feedback on, on a, a certain thing, like, you know, are we building the right thing or, um, do we like the way, uh, search results are ordered or, you know, things like that. And we get all this like pixel level feedback. Mm. Um, we get, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm happy to even drop Dick's name. Like, you know, Dick, we get a lot of like, you know, things like, oh, this gray is too dark or I don't like this gray from, from Dick Costello, our CEO. Yeah. Um, and, and like, I'm not looking for that sort of feedback um, at the time. And it's a real problem. And, and 
I after I heard all this, you know, I went to Dick and I'm like, you know, Dick is great. Like Dick actually has great uh, product instincts he does. and like he's great at giving product feedback and like he he's like his influence on the product is a is a very very good thing. Um, but you know, when I when I when I went to him and I said, hey, you know, here's what the team is saying. Like, you know, when you have these sorts of um, type, when you have this sort of feedback, you know, come to me with it. So that I so that, that I can give it to the team in a way, you know, in, at an appropriate time, uh, you know, and see if we can kind of like solve your concerns that way. And he was like, OK, that sounds great. Um, and from that moment on, like that's that's the way it worked. Like and so that kind of showed me that like the process was was not as structured as structured as it needed to be. And so, you know, we we started doing design reviews, um, you know, in the team first. So it was only designers, you know, mm-hmm. and it basically for people who are, cur- who are curious how this works at a large company, you know, a bad process is basically, um, you know, a bunch of people getting around a table and somebody just showing some screens and going, what do you think? Um, right. And what happens with that is, you know, you go around the table and there's just all sorts of random comments and it, it doesn't really like, it's not helpful. It's, it's, I mean, there may be like one out of every, you know, five or six comments like ends up actually doing something, but it's not like super helpful to the designer um, working on it. And so, you know, we sort of refined that process. So it was more, you know, it was more of a, of a, of a solicitation for specific feedback. So the designer was expected to go up there and say, here's the, here's the problem I'm trying to solve. Um, Here's why we think it's a problem. Here's the stage that I'm at in solving this problem. And here's the sort of feedback that I'm looking for. And that sort of feedback could be, I'm looking for um, opinions about whether people like this iconography. Um, it could be, I'm looking for opinions as to what people think of the research we used for this for this uh, this this project. I'm looking for opinions uh, on if this is something we should even be working on. And so, you know, when you frame this, when you frame it that way, you sort of give you know pe- the people that are critiquing your work. Uh, the appropriate amount of constraint right. so that so that they can be more helpful in their feedback. And like as with design, like it's very hard to design if you have no constraints. It's also very hard to give helpful critique if you aren't given a certain constraint like that. Here's a, a framework that I always use with my team is that yeah. at the beginning of any kind of session around evaluating, like doing, we, first of all, I call it product review and not design review, which mm-hmm. I tried to get people to open up their heads and say like, yeah, that's great. first, like, I, I don't mind if an engineer comes to this venue and yeah. wants to talk through a database structure. Yeah. Right? I want you to use the same techniques and the same level of respect and all of that kind of stuff. And I, um, but we would, at the beginning, set out whether it's divergent meeting or convergent yep. meeting. Saying, yeah. is this where the designer has just begun and wants as many ideas to fill up an idea space to choose from and go out and evaluate? Or is this convergence? where they have already done that process and now are looking for, you know, things like, is this technically feasible? Does it follow all the constraints that we have? Does it, you know, and we're going to drive towards consensus as opposed to almost like improv, you know, where we're like, everybody says yes. And in the first meeting and everybody says, uh, I agree, let's do this in the second meeting. So very, very different, but man, when you want one thing and you get the other, like when you're trying to get consensus yeah. on this final solution and somebody's like, hey, have you thought about maybe what if we brought streaming video in here? And you're like, geez, yeah. I'm just trying. Um, yeah. And that is always uh, with the power dynamic of presenting to executives as well, who always want to feel like they contributed some like, you know, enormous brainstorm activ- uh, idea out of nowhere. 
Oh, it's so frustrating. So I, I think the, the way you were framing it, that is, is spot on. Um, as well as to kind of teaching the rest of the organization how to give feedback, giving them the vocabulary. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, I think I love, I love the, I love the idea of explicitly framing it as a, a convergent or, or diver, divergent stage. You know, a lot of people don't even know what the kind of double diamond method of problem solving is, you know, yep, where yep. you, you, you diverge on what everybody thinks the problem is, and then you converge on what everybody thinks the problem is. Then you diverge on solutions. Yeah. Um, and then, and then you converge on solutions. And so, just showing people, including execs, especially yeah. execs, in fact, <laughs> especially, yeah. uh, like where you are in that double diamond process uh, is super useful. And by the way, uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, getting other people involved, uh, you know, a, a great, you know, people, everybody always wants designers to like show their work as early as possible. And like, this is kind of a controversial thing for designers because, you know, we're sort of embarrassed about our work until, until it gets to a, a certain stage. Right. And we're like, sometimes ah, just, we never get over that. Sometimes we never get over that. Exactly. But there's always this stage where you're like, ah, just leave me alone on my computer so I can just like make this awesome for you before I show it to you. Right. You know, and then engineers and, exe and execs are like, nah, don't make it pixel perfect. Like we want some input and that's totally like, you know, they should do that. Um, but like one of the really like great things about, you know, doing that as a designer, you know, involving people early, you know, early in that double diamond, like even at the very first stage is then, you know, if an exec was present at the, at the stage where you were taught diverging on what the problem is, they then feel more invested in the actual solution. So by the time you get to the end of that process, they're like, ah, I was involved the whole way and I contributed the whole way. And therefore I like this project <laughs> and this, and the solution. There's also the like teaching people how to ask the right questions. Yeah. And I don't think anybody ever really learns that skill. So, I mean, and I kind of came to all of that through the kind of ethnographic user research process where learn about open questions that get people to talk about what they're thinking and feeling as opposed to the closed questions that they just answer with a yes or no, right? Like, yeah. So, you know, for example, looking at a, at a interface in a design or a product review and saying, I don't like that blue is very different from asking somebody why they chose a color, um, yeah. which is different again from asking, is color important here and are we using the right tool or the right methods to communicate the solution? And yeah. all of those are, are an attempt to get the person who did the creation to speak about the process and, their, and what they tried and what failed and why this works or, and all of that and, and evaluate that stuff and not just the solution. It's hard yeah. though, it's really hard. It's really hard and like it's so much more it's it's hard enough in person as you just mentioned. It is even harder on Twitter. So a lot of the, the Oh, you mean that, you mean the hot takes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um so you know the the process that you mentioned like you know getting people to talk about their process and why they did a certain thing and and you know what does color matter here and all that like those things are best done you know, in a face-to-face -face conversation, ideally, yeah, because yeah. You, know, you can read you can read people's faces. Are they frustrated? Are they happy? Are they confused? Um, and, and there's just a lot of back and forth um, and, and that that gets you to to the answer that you want a lot quicker. Whereas, you know, when you see this stuff happen in you know 140 characters at a time, when you know when something new you know gets redesigned that everybody's commenting on. Not everybody is is really pr present at the same kind of levels, you know, so like the, maybe somebody shoots out a hot take, right? And like they're, you know, they took the day off. And so they, you know, they, they're sitting there on a Tuesday morning and they're hot. They, they're, here's their hot take on this new thing that got redesigned. And like they're available for the whole day to, <laughs> to, to, to keep ripping on their hot take and like totally. talk to as many people that want to talk to them about it. And then like, 
other people that are involved in that conversation, like they're at work and like they've got time for like a tweet here and a tweet there. And maybe the people who design the work um, are also working all day and like they've got time to respond here and there. And so like it's it's a it's an unequal um, exchange of time and information. And it makes for a very weird dynamic, you know, where we're, we're not all sitting there concentrating on getting getting to the bottom of a question. We're just sort of like living our lives and then and then occasionally throwing out a sentence um, that that hopefully gets, you know, some attention. Yeah, and so yeah. I have just noticed that it's not always the best. Uh, in fact, it's rarely the best way to, you know, to, to get in-depth analysis about, you know, about a, a, a designer product decision. So you're, you're, you're really talking about like uh, me as a designer sitting on Twitter and looking at like LinkedIn's changes to the profiles and saying, here's what I think. Yeah. And probably with a motivation of social capital and not yeah. actual product improvement, right? Like yeah. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm saying this because I want people to think I'm a smart designer and, um, and I've got my finger on the pulse. And, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a flip side to that as well, which is like, what are we looking for as designers of products from public feedback, especially kind of public peer feedback? Like how do we right. incorporate that? And is that important at all? Should we even worry about it or? Hmm. Right. Right. So, so I wrote this article called uh, "How to Give Helpful Product Design Feedback." Yeah. And in it, I talk about uh, I don't you know I don't talk a whole lot about the sort of you know everyday person giving you know giving feedback publicly, but I do talk about like peer like peer to peer kind of like giving giving feedback to other designers as a designer. Right. Um, or, or giving feedback to other PMs as a PM, or giving feedback to other engineers as an engineer. And I, I do feel like they're sort of like parallel things. I think for the average LinkedIn user, like I don't expect the average LinkedIn user to be, be you know, to, to think deeply about their reactions to a, a LinkedIn redesign at all. They're just right. reacting. Like you're, they're just reacting to whatever LinkedIn throws in front of them, you know? And so it, it, the designers and the PMs and the engineers who are working on that product, you know, should look at that feedback and kind of filter it out for you know uh, uh, great pieces of insight uh, and great reactions that can help them solve problems, but I think as designers we have the we have a unique ability to to go a little bit further and to and to help that kind of investigative process of improving the product. And so for those of us who have worked you know in a, an organization of any kind of meaningful size, you know where that you, know, you can't just you know push a change in five minutes and you you know you actually have stakeholders you have to talk to uh, before you you know you you. you you make any changes, um, you know, we, we, we're, we should be more aware of what goes into the product decisions of our peers. Like we should be aware of like, oh, this thing got moved over here, which doesn't seem like a good idea, but oh, there's probably a reason for that. And as a product designer slash investigator, can I figure out what that reason is? Can, right. I, can, can I poke around on the site for five minutes, for 10 minutes, and maybe discover what the reason is for moving something that way, you know, over to a certain area. And if I can, maybe then I'm more equipped to actually give feedback on it. Um, I think, you know, uh, I watched this, uh, this panel that our, our your good friend and mine, Koi Vin, mm. um, moderated uh, on design critique. Uh, so this is like professional design critique. These are like, you know, write, writers who, who, who do design critique for, uh, you know, for a living for Fast Company or, you know, whatever. Right. Um, and he talked about, you know, or, or actually, uh, he asked a question, and one of the one of the people answering said, you know, hey, the root of all the root of critique is reporting, and I, you know, I take that a step further, and I say, I would say, the root of critique is investigation, mm. and so, yeah. you know, 
if you're if you want to really give meaningful critique, whether it's just sort of like this giant article you want to write about it, or whether it's like actually just providing helpful direct feedback to the you know the design team. Um, you should try to investigate things yourself, or at least aid in the aid in the in a larger investigation that may need to occur. Because I think that's where the really kind of like meaningful stuff comes out. That's interesting. That is really interesting. Like I've talked about this. In fact, one of the first uh, episodes of this podcast, we talked about uh, the fantasy redesigns that young designers often do. You know, yeah. and I, and I became very familiar with this working at Adobe uh, and spending a lot of time with Behance, where everybody has their yeah. portfolios. And so many designers have a portfolio piece of my fantasy redesign of the Facebook feed or the LinkedIn yeah. profile or yeah. even Twitter, right? They, yeah. they do this all the time. And I have always sort of bristled at that because how could you possibly understand all the constraint that's been placed on the designers of those products? Right. Like you are frustrated with the way that content is showing up in a feed, but you have no idea what the licensing constraints are with the biz dev deal that happened between the two companies. Right. right? You just don't know. And so you're yeah. thinking uh, the, ar the, the seemingly arbitrary decisions that went into the design are actually have tons and tons of constraint placed on them. And, and, and the sort of almost hubris that comes with thinking like, oh, I could do this so much better. Well, of course you can. You don't have all of those constraints. But Right. So I'm of two minds on that. Like, I actually enjoy those sorts of takes. So I enjoy when somebody has put a bunch, somebody with a fresh perspective has put a bunch of time into like a, a sort of a blue sky, you know, rethink of a product. I, I think it's really cool. And I, and I think that mm -hmm. oftentimes the best people to do things like that are people who aren't like steeped in the day to day, uh, you know, constraints of, of you know, of an or, a, a large organization. So I appreciate that. And I like yep. that part of it where I think it goes over the line where I don't appreciate it is if somebody accompanies their redesign with a with a, 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 a statement to the effect of, I hate this product and nothing in it makes sense. And yeah. like, it took me a week to design this thing that is clearly better than what's out there. Right. So like, to me, or the follow-on takes, right? So maybe the person who designed the thing doesn't even say that, but like post it to Dribbble and there's a bunch of comments that say like, oh, this is so much better than the thing yeah. that exists, you know? like. So to me, I, I like to separate the the act of the the, the 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 helpful, I think, act of creating a new thing outside of existing constraints, and the I think unhelpful, you know, hubris-filled kind of commentary that often, but not always, comes along with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the the way you were framing up critique, though, because I see it as part uh, what you were saying, investigation. What was the thinking? Can I uncover the thinking that goes into here? But I also think there's this aspect of it, which is how does the stuff that I'm seeing in the products of today impact our culture? Like yeah. you know, kind of like cultural critique of like, all right, so we're doing design this way now and we're designing for these things and we're, we're making choices and prioritizations. And can I uncover that? And that to me is, you know, the kind of criticism I love to read of any media Really? Oh, yeah. Like, like, here's a movie review that talks about how the story fell apart and, like, cinematography was a little whatever. But then there's the, the, the aspects of it of, like, and here's the voices that we are exposing to the world now and yes. why that's important. Like, those two levels of criticism, I think, go really well together. Totally, totally agree. I absolutely agree. And I think we're just sort of, like, waking up to, 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 to a world in which 
you know, the, the critique of societal effects on what we design is a lot more important than the critique of, you know, what everybody thinks of rounded corners versus whatever else, you know, a designer decided to do. Right. Um, and, and so you're right. Like a, a lot of it is like, where are we putting our energy? You know, are we putting our energy into the minutia of design, which is fine. Like, you know, de de you know, details are design details are very, very important, but are, are we putting too much energy into that and not enough energy into exactly what you said, which is like, what are the societal effects, good yeah. and bad, of designing a thing that does this thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a great example is like, let's really think about these like low data modes, right? And you switch, yeah. your, switch your app into low data mode um, as an attempt to allow the product to expand and grow in emerging markets that may not have the bandwidth. Like, mm -hmm. oh, that, oh, there's so much richness there. Like, do we have two mm -hmm. versions? Should, shouldn't everything be low data mode? I don't know. What, what's the opportunity? What's the impact on usability? I love, love, love stuff like that. I don't see enough of that. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's probably just even though we've been, some of us <laughs> doing it for 20 years, still pretty new and fresh, like as a discipline, as a yeah. practice. As a practice. Yeah. I mean, I think optimizing for impact is a really good kind of rule, right? Mm. Like whether you're, you know, whether you're, you're, you're in the middle of a design process or whether you're critiquing something like, how can I make the most positive impact with my next, you know, X, X amount of energy expended. Yeah. So, you know, you may be in the middle of the design process and you can say, well, you know, I really want this animation, this, this, I really want this animation to be just perfect. You know, and then you decide, you get together with the engineers and you decide, well, you know, it's, it's going to be like a month to get this perfect because we have to write our own springs and our own physics engine and like to do it exactly the way you want. Like it, it really is a lot of work. Um, but, you know, we have this competitor who's like about to release something in a week. And if we don't get our thing out before their thing, like we, we nobody might, you know, people might not even use our thing anymore. Right. So you, you, you ask yourself like, okay, which, you know, how do we, which, which use of our energy best maximizes our impact? And like, it's probably not the animation in that case, but in other cases, maybe it is right. In other cases, like, you know, like animation, um, other visual design kind of elements fit and finish, like it really does make a difference. And so you can't be dogmatic about what matters because you know, what matters is different at every point in time. Who's doing good design critique. I think Koi is, and I think that's a, um, a good place to go look for some. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Follow, following anything? I, I look at stuff like I've I've always kind of been a fan of Design Observer, you know. Um, yeah. But that that feels generational, if I could say. Yeah. It. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it's a little yeah. bit dated. I don't know. But yeah, I always get a, I always get a kick out of the uh, you know under consideration brand new uh, yeah. blog. You know, every time the a logo gets redesigned, Armin does a really good job of kind of, you know, being humorous, but also being, you know, biting in his, in his kind of critique of, of how he thinks something turned out. And so, you know, that, that to me is a good, it's a good balance. It's not, um, you know, it, it pays proper respect to the process, but it's yeah. also, you know, it's also very direct. I think usually right on, like, I, you know, I don't always agree with them, but uh, like, for instance, I've always loved the new American Airlines branding, you know, from <laughs> several years ago. I was one yeah. of the few like, this is great. I love it. Like, <laughs> And there were all these other people who were like, how dare you, you redesign something Vignelli uh, designed. Um, you couldn't possibly do something better than Vignelli. Right. Uh, <laughs> so like to me, it's not even about like that, that particular redesign. It wasn't about doing something better than Vignelli. It was about, you know, at least from my perspective, American Airlines w had a terrible reputation problem back then, like old planes, bad service, like, uh, you know, a lot of incident, like high profile, negative incidents. And so like, it doesn't matter how nice your logo is. Like if you're mired in that sort of, you know, kind of brand perception, 
you know, refreshing things is is a is a useful you know thing to do. And so yeah. when I look at the new, you know, when I look at the new American Airlines branding, which now looks you know perfectly natural and great, like to me it's a it's a fresh start. It's yep. not about it's not about upstaging a famous designer. It's about getting a fresh start, and that's what they did. Yeah, I, lo- I love that blog as well. Um, so I'll link to that as well. Where can we? Uh, where are you writing these days? I'll send people over to that article. That's at mikeindustries.com. That's your website. Yeah, I'm writing. Uh, so what I do is I generally write um, on Mike Industries, and then if it's an article that I think is a you know pretty general, wide ranging interest, I will then cross post it to uh, my Medium site, which is medium.mikeindustries.com. Uh, I don't know Got why it. I do that, just because you know network effects on Medium are pretty good, and like you know syndication. Why not? Syndication, it's totally, yeah, it's a totally reasonable yeah. thing to do. That's yeah, good. totally. You know, and on, I mean, on that subject, you know, when I when I worked at Twitter, I think you know I tweeted a lot when I worked at Twitter. I still tweeted a decent amount, but yeah. you know, one of the things I noticed about myself was tweeting, both reading tweets too much and writing tweets too much, sapped my um, energy to read and write long form. Yeah, uh, yeah, and so because you know because you have this like seed of an idea. You're like, I want to write about this. And then you think of like a pretty funny tweet about it and you tweet it and you're like, okay, I wrote about it. I'm done. Yeah. Or the, or the tweet storm. I can get this out in 540 character bursts. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. And I, I just didn't, I didn't really like, like that dynamic. So I, I found myself like now, I, I found myself now tweeting less about important, you know, impo- topics that deserve a full article and actually writing the full article, That's good. Uh, which, which is more, I think is more meaningful for myself. Um, and hopefully more meaningful to the people who actually read it. Yeah, that was, that was frankly some of the motivation for me doing this podcast, to try to get into stuff a little bit deeper in a way that, like I just, the writing is sometimes so hard uh, and doing it in a collaborative way with another person, like we're having a conversation. Um, yeah. And it really worked. So yeah, yeah awesome. more more meat, less sugar, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. A great, a, by the way, a great way, I found a great way to start writing more is write, with, write without a requirement that you publish it at the end. So like I've written plenty of articles over the last, you know, year or so that I just haven't published and I'll never publish because I thought it was a good thing to write about. Mm. I spent, you know, a few days writing it and it ended up being pretty long. And then I read it and I'm like, eh, this is good enough, you know, and so I'm just not going to publish it. And I don't look at that as a failure. Right. I look I look at it as exercise. Yeah, practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a good way to probably try to silence that inner critic, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Think you're going to get a job? Uh, I think eventually, I mean, I just, I don't know. Like I, I, I really, to be honest, like I, 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 I love not having a schedule. Like I love that. I love yeah. that each week is random, you know, yeah. and you know, one week I might be traveling like I am this week. Another week I might be spending, um, you know, talking to a company like Amazon, uh, a couple weeks ago, you know, went and talked to about 200 designers and design yeah. leaders there yeah. for a couple hours. Uh, and another week I might be doing a bunch of writing or a bunch of cooking. Um, I'm running a lot too. I just like, I just last week I just ran a half marathon cause I was feeling Maybe. good one day. Nice yeah. Um, so I'm just enjoying kind of the amount of variety that, that goes along with kind of this, <laughs> this point in my life. So I, I do think eventually, you know, once, once the list of product ideas gets to the point where like, yeah. there's one where I, I, I have to develop this, then I yeah. will do it. Yeah. Um, but, but that, that could be next week or it could be next year. That's good. Good. Well, enjoy the sabbatical, regardless of Thank how long you. it takes. That's awesome. And thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate yeah. it. Excellent conversation. Yeah, great talking to you, Jeff. And 
that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.